are listening to Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast where I discuss writing. This episode, we're not going to be talking about any specific author. This is going to be kind of a more talkative episode. We're going to go over my top 10 list for things, like I said, we were going to do last week. I want to talk about writing women in fiction. And I want to talk about my new book, Angry Bluebird, that came out yesterday, Friday, May 5th, and it is available for free May 6th and 7th, so by the time you listen to this, you will have missed out. But that's okay, it's only 99 cents on Kindle, and it's only going to be available as an ebook. More on that later. I bought a new pedal for the first time since December. My wife got me some guitar pedals for Christmas, but I bought a new pedal for the first time in months, which is kind of uncharacteristic for me here lately because in 2020 and 2021 and 2022, I was all about them guitar pedals, baby, but I got the Wonder Effects Old Blue Overdrive. Now, for those of you who are unaware, you know, simply don't give a shit because you don't play guitar. I have never bought anything from Wonder Effects before, but I was just browsing through TikTok, and this goes to show you the power of social media, and one of this guy's TikToks popped up, and he made me laugh, and I looked at his stuff. I saw a TikTok where he was demonstrating the old blue, and it sounded amazing. It reminds me a little bit of the Wampler Euphoria, which is also this amazing overdrive pedal that borders on being a distortion pedal, but this has a little bit more clarity to it, and it's based, from what I understand, slightly based on a, a Timmy. I'm not a big fan of Timmy's, but I really love the sound of this, and it it is kind of like a light gain distortion, but I looked at his suggested settings from the online manual, and it does a great blues breaker sound. I was very impressed by that. It's not a blues breaker clone at all, but it does a lot of different sounds, and I was surprised. And it's got a unique tone to it as well. That's what I like about it. So it's on my board right now next to my Wampler Velvet Fuzz. It's the only pedal on my board that isn't a Wampler other than my Boss Tuner. So we'll see how long it lasts before I put it in the box and swap it out for something else in my collection. I just completed a novella for the podcast. It's almost 50 pages long, which to some people may not be a novella, but it is a novella. And it's from a character that I am revisiting, and it's got elements of the novel Birch in it, but... What I don't know if I want to tell you who it's about quite yet, but it is a very important character that I feel didn't really get to be as explored as he deserved. And I'm talking about a male character right before I start talking about women characters. (laughs) I've only recorded a couple of songs for the soundtrack for this episode, And it's forthcoming. I'm not going to give you a specific date. I don't even know what I'm reading on the podcast next week. So there's also that. But 
this is going to be one episode. It might be a very long one because I'm reading almost 50 pages. So I'll probably be recording it throughout, throughout the week or maybe over the course of a couple of weeks. Who knows? But I have a soundtrack in mind for it. I pulled out the old Electro Harmonics Key 9 and almost threw it across the fucking room. I used my newer Les Paul on a song and almost threw it across the room. Here's the thing that I didn't know about newer Gibson guitars. So I got my first actual Gibson Les Paul in February. And I'm paying it off in installments thanks to American Music Supply. And apparently, unbeknownst to me, nitro finishes on these guitars can cause a buildup of static. And it's something to do with the way that the nitro and the plastic reacts. And I have read forum posts from people who said they ended up selling or trading their new Gibson guitar or returning it because of this issue. So I have a dryer sheet in my guitar case right now with it. And I have tried messing with the jack. I haven't tried shielding everything. But the dryer sheet actually seems to work. I raised the action a little bit because the only static I was getting was from the neck pickup and mostly on the E string, the top E string, the low one however you want to refer to it, the sixth each string, the thickest one. Everyone has different things that they call that string or, you know, ways of referring to the guitar strings. But uh, it's annoying when you're recording, I can tell you that. Because the reason why I own a Taylor acoustic guitar is because my lag when I was recording the album Sunken Sphere was very obnoxious to the point where I almost broke it against the wall. I don't mind if I'm just playing around in my room and I get a little noise or a little static or anything, but when I'm recording, that's when I don't need any interference. So I might end up using my Paul Reed Smith a lot more on this. Uh, I would love to have another Paul Reed Smith, honestly. Because after this experience with Gibson, I love Les Pauls. I love this guitar a lot. Otherwise, I would have returned it. But I don't want to have another Gibson experience like this again. Because I've, I've had similar issues with the neck and the fretboard and the action like I did with my old casino back in the day. I have had used Epiphone Les Pauls and Epiphone SGs. That were great right out of the box. But when I got a brand new Gibson SG for Christmas back in 2005, it needed work. From my perspective, if you're paying the money for a brand new Gibson and you have to immediately adjust a bunch of shit on it, they're not giving you your money's worth. That's a quality control issue. Yes, you're listening to Demise of the Podcast, a literary podcast. So my new book, Angry Bluebird, is out, and it has most of the short stories that I published last year in 2022 when I did a short story every week for 10 weeks, which went up like a Led Zeppelin and not to the band. And 
you know, I was hesitant to put this book out for a while. In fact, this book existed prior to Angry, Angry Bluebird in the form of a book called Awkward Phase that was going to be both short stories and poetry. But given my experience with the Disease of Ambition, which is now out of print, and toxic literature, I decided, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the best short stories from Disease of Ambition, the ones that, that don't make me cringe, the best ones from toxic literature, and I'm going to be putting them in this collection with the, the 10, well, actually nine out of the 10 short stories that were not published, plus an essay I wrote called uh, The Apartment on Maple Street. It's about the time that my pre-K teacher took her students to her apartment. That was fun. She took a nap, by the way. And my rationale for only releasing it as an ebook. I know some people are like, ugh, I hate reading on a tablet or I hate reading on my phone. I'm sorry. But most of my sales come from ebooks. And if you want me to be perfectly transparent, I will pull up my stats right now if I'm too embarrassed to read them. <laughs> so I posted on Reddit. I don't have a Twitter anymore, so I posted on Reddit and three different subreddits. I have posted two TikToks about it. I'm now talking about it on my podcast, but by the time anyone hears it, it's not going to matter. And I've also posted about it on Facebook. So who is reading my books through Kate? Through the, I don't know what it's called, Kindle Unlimited. Someone's reading my books through Kindle Unlimited. Oh, they read 13 pages of Greenskin. Thank you, whoever you are. So I have sold as of the first day. Are you ready for this? Free copies of my book, people. Let's see. Somehow they end up giving away, when you do free giveaways, like an hour before it starts, sometimes they let you download. So in total, I have sold, are you ready? 33 copies as of 4 p.m. It's actually 4 or 6 on May 6th of my brand new book. Now, granted, I could have done a lot more promotion for it, but let's be real here. My established audience is very small. There are more people listening to my podcast than there are people actually reading my work. And that's unfortunate. I wish more of you would read my stuff, support the podcast through buying my books, listening to my music. There are more people listening to my music than, than reading my books, which is ironic because at one point in time when I had a blog, there were a lot more people, and I mean a lot more people, reading my blog than listening to my music. And the, the, the tide has shifted. And today when I was in Target, I was looking at all the books with their obnoxiously colorful covers and their font that's all the same shit, mostly Colleen Hoover stuff. And I know, you know, one of my, my friends and readers is a fan of, of Colleen Hoover. My wife likes Colleen Hoover, although my wife doesn't think that Colleen Hoover is a good writer. And that's fine. You know, read what you want. One of my favorite, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I'm going to spoil it for everybody. One of my favorite TV shows of all time is Two and a Half Men. And a lot of people think that that show is terrible. 
So don't take it personally that I think that Colleen Hoover sucks. But it's disheartening as an author, and this is a writing podcast, so I'm trying to be real with you here. It's disheartening as an author when you go into just a store like Target and you see all these names of people. And every time I see an author that I've never heard of before, their book is front and center near the cash registers in the back of the store. And now this particular Target in Noonan, I went to Noonan today, and this particular Target now has a book section where they used to have a a DVD and Blu-ray section near the pantry aisle. So books are as popular as ever. I don't care what anyone says. Books as items, as products are as popular as ever. Maybe reading isn't, but books, people, I mean, there are a lot of people who read Colleen Hoover, sure, but there are also a lot of people who just just collect books. They want to come off as being literate. They want to come off as being smarter. And they fill their bookshelves with just absolutely shitty writing. There is nothing more disheartening as a lover of literature than when someone is on Instagram or TikTok or somewhere and they're proudly displaying the shittiest books in the world. And if we're talking about shitty books, you know, maybe my, my books are shittier than their books, but it's really weird. I'm not saying that people need to just read old dead white guys, but we've talked about this on the podcast before. Most traditionally published authors who get through the whole process, they get an agent, they get a a contract, they get editors looking at their work, they get someone who is able to put together a professional cover. They put their books out there, they sell less than 12 copies. It's not unheard of. It's pretty common. And as I've said before, Think about all the times you've passed a bookstore like Books a Million and you see a discount section that's on the outside of the store. So literally anyone could just pick up a book and leave without paying for it. Think of all the times you've seen all those books there with authors you've never heard of. And it's not hard to get discouraged when you're self-published or traditionally published. I would not have written this novella for the podcast if I didn't believe in my work, but also if I didn't just love writing for the sake of writing. I encountered a lot of people on Twitter who would have rather had a million bucks than write a quality novel for the rest of their life. I hate to tell you, but there's no money in this. For some people, they get success, they make money, sure. But most of us, even successful authors like Percival Everett, we're still working day jobs. And I I say we as if I'm in the same category as Percival Everett. I'm not. But David Sedaris, sure, he makes a lot of money from his books. But he makes more money from touring. He's one of the few authors out there who can do a book tour, a reading tour, a signing tour, and make bank. You know, I bet if if Stephen King or J.K. Rowling really wanted to, they could. But 
how many authors do you know of who are constantly in rotation every year touring like that? I mean, that's unheard of. So now that we're still on the, the topic of writing, I want to talk about writing women. And this is not a new subject for the podcast, but since this is a writing podcast, I want to do kind of a series, maybe just one-offs here and there, where we actually talk about things like prose, dialogue, elements of writing. And I'm not an expert on anything, people. I'm not telling you what's right and wrong. This is all just my opinion. I hate it when people dole out advice and make clickbait titles on blogs and YouTube and TikTok. I don't like any of that. So this is not what that is. I'm not trying to be a textbook here. Now, if you're curious whether or not I have the qualifications to talk about writing other than being an author, I have a bachelor's and a master's degree in English. So I've studied literature. I've studied writing. I minored in creative writing in undergrad. I did creative writing in my grad program. I also studied a lot of pedagogy, and I taught for a short time. So I understand how to kind of put together lesson plans and also structure a concept to where you can learn from it. Now, I'm not saying that that's what this is necessarily. I haven't prepared anything. I've been thinking about it, though. I can only tell you how I think men should be writing women through my own experiences, okay? So I don't think that anyone in the world would go to Bukowski or, or even Bredesen Ellis for advice on how to write a quality woman in their story or their book. And it's not that I think that those writers are inherently bad about it, but that's not what they're known for. But they're my favorite authors. So that's kind of a disclaimer here. Despite the fact that I love authors like Brady Stanellis and Bukowski, I know well enough to not take any influence from them when it comes to writing specific women, unless the story calls for it. Now, over the past couple of years, I've been writing a lot of women characters, but not many women protagonist because as a man, as a straight white guy, there are other voices that need to be heard. So I'm never going to write a novel. I say this and my next novel is going to be written from the perspective of a woman, but I'm probably never going to write a novel all from the perspective of a woman because I'm not a woman and there are women authors out there who deserve to be heard. Their voice deserves to be heard. In 2015, I wrote a short story called Jesse, and then another short story that I can't remember the name of, but I also wrote a third short story called Patrick that was kind of encapsulating of both of these short stories, and they're both in Angry Bluebird because they were what I considered the best stories from uh, Disease of Ambition. I have an established history of worrying about writing women because for one thing I don't want to be one of those guys who ends up on the subreddit men writing women or whatever it's called I don't want people 
feeling like I'm trying to marginalize women in my writing, for one thing, which is, you know, something that you can't always help. I'll say that you can write what you think is the best work of all time and you're always going to get haters. But last week I was reading Hemingway on the podcast and he's not known for writing great women characters. And that was one of the things that as I was reading put me off about his writing. And it was one of the things that when I originally read his short stories, whenever I did like 2012, whenever I noticed right off the bat, the way that he referred to women and categorize them I didn't like it and I don't always I read Piers Anthony on the podcast partially as a joke but he's also one of those authors who's known for just constantly writing ditzy overly sexualized women he has a book called the the color of her panties he has another book that's full of absolutely disgusting pornographic stories called pornocopia. I mean, there's a long history of men in every genre writing terrible women. And when I wrote Jesse in 2015, what I was trying to do was not only kind of respond to the people who, who said, what's the difference between writing a woman and a man? And by the way, the only person, the only people who've ever asked me that question have been women. Because, let me tell you something. There are differences between men and women. And we can get into gender roles and um, societal rules and constructs. But realistically speaking... You can't necessarily ignore all of that when you're writing because you want to come off as someone who doesn't think of people who aren't like you as lesser than you. So if I write a person of color in a novel, for instance, I have Jamarin in Surviving New America. He's a very good intellectual detective. Okay. And he was inspired by an actual black actor. I believe his name is Reno Wilson. He was in Good Girls. And I, I thought he just did a phenomenal job in that show. And it inspired me to write that character. My favorite character that I've ever written is Summer from Greenskin. That's not a character I could have written in 2015. She is hopeful. She's positive. She has hopes, goals. She has her own personality. She has a history that she talks about quite clearly. I just absolutely adored her character when I was writing her. And if someone were to read her character and think, oh, she's just there for sex appeal, or oh, she's Patrick marginalizing women, I would say that you were objectively wrong. But other than her, that book also has women who are career women. 
they're like the women that I grew up with. See, I grew up an only child of a single mom. And my mother never remarried. So it was just me and her. I have another mother figure in my life through my grandmother, who I haven't seen or spoken to since 2017. So I have a history of just amazing women in my life who pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. They, my mother's had the same job for over 30 years. You know, most of my teachers, most of my managers at work, so many of the professional people in my life have been women. So I draw on from, on, I draw from them for inspiration, but you also need to remember I'm a man. I love women both as someone who admires them, but also as someone who is sexually attracted to women. And that's something that I have to think about when I'm writing them. When I wrote Lilith in Demise of the Trinity and Price of the Trinity and other works, I wanted to make sure that she wasn't just there for sex. So her, her history is that She's the first woman to ever exist, and God made her in order to procreate with Adam. But Adam rejects her. You're familiar with the story, even if you haven't read my book. And so Satan accepts her, and Satan utilizes her gift to subvert men's power throughout history. And so she's got a long history before she shows up in Demise and Price of the Trinity. She's very bright. She's intelligent. She has a sharp wit. She's more than just the most beautiful woman to ever exist who looks different to every single man who looks at her. And in the end, what happens? She ends up getting to be Satan. She takes on the role of Satan in Surviving New America and continues that role into Birch. But there are other women that I love from those books, like Veronica. Veronica, oh my God, she's actually the first character that I wrote for Demise of the Trinity. And she developed quite a bit. And I almost brought her back in part two of that novel. But in the rewrite, after my beta reader got her hands on it, um, I... I changed that last part of the novel significantly and took Veronica out. You want to know what the difference is between writing men and women? Well, the difference is that women are obviously biologically different than men, and that's something that I've never experienced before. You can ask women, you can listen to women, but you'll never really know. It's sort of like how... You can read every quality piece of work, both fiction and nonfiction, from a black author. You can watch documentaries. You can talk to black people. But you'll never truly know what their experience is because you've never stepped out into the world as a black person unless you're listening to this and you happen to be a black person. So race and gender are things that you're never going to experience unless you're able to step into that person's skin. 
So that's a big disadvantage as a male author, I think, for all of us, is that no matter how much empathy, no matter how much knowledge you have, you will never truly know. So I never write women as if I'm writing a male character and just say I'm writing a woman. But at the same time, I think of their motivations. I think, is this character smart? Are they stupid? Did they possess some sort of gift, like in the case of Holner from Surviving New America? She was a great villain, by the way. And I, I've thought about writing her more, but it's sort of like the, the, the thing with Lilith or Veronica. They left their mark on the story. How much more of a mark can I really make? The, the idea is that you write quality over quantity, correct? Always make sure that a major woman in your story has motivation, Always make sure that they're not just there to serve a purpose for a male protagonist. Now, there's nothing wrong with writing a love interest, but make sure that they have a backstory. Make sure that they're able to contribute to conversations. A lot of what makes Greenskin a lot of fun for me are the conversations between Wayne and Summer. And Summer is the spice of that relationship. And you need to be aware that just because you have a, a, an interest in a woman writer doesn't mean that she's the best representative of women. Okay, so I love Sylvia Plath. I love The Bell Jar. It's one of the books that's in my top ten list. Spoiler alert. But she doesn't like a lot of people in that novel. And the way she presents other women in that novel, if it were written by a man, people would have some words to say. Same for Flannery O'Connor. You know, in a, a Good Man is Hard to Find... That if that again, if that were written by a man, people would have a few things to say because that grandmother in that story is absolutely the worst. Now she's she's well written for what she is. I'm not saying that it's a poorly written character, but boy, she is presented as the ruiner for everything. She's the cause of her family's demise. That was something that I argued in my class with my students. If she didn't want to go look at plantations and whatnot, they wouldn't have run into the misfit. But if you're struggling to figure out, well, what author would be a really good way to understand the perspective of a woman, I think that a really good way of getting around that is reading nonfiction. Or better yet, reading historical letters. Just anything to get a different perspective on things. And there are tons of podcasts that are essentially by women for women. But some of that you, you have to take it with a grain with, of salt. You know, for instance, Call Her Daddy. I think that 
Alex Cooper is not a very good interviewer. And I've, you know, my wife and I would listen to those early episodes together and we would cringe a lot. And that is not necessarily the kind of representation that women are looking for in their literature. You know, some of us are introverts, but just talk. You know, if you're a man and you're afraid to talk to women, that might be a huge reason why you're not writing quality women. You need to be able to have conversations and ask their perspective. You know, anytime I've ever gotten to know a woman, whether it be platonic or romantic, every single one of them has told me a story where a man has sexually assaulted them across the board. I've met very few women who haven't been sexually assaulted in some way. That's something that you need to take into consideration when you're writing a woman, because that's something that influences her decisions. And you also need to be very aware of your audience. So it's fine to write a piece of shit guy character. It's fine to write a piece of shit woman character, but you need to be mindful that if you just write women who just consistently make terrible decisions, people are going to notice that about you. So make sure that you're writing kind of a mixture, just like the men that you write. If I wrote a novel where every single guy in the story was stupid, I'm sure someone would take offense. I recently read a Reddit Reddit thread where someone was complaining about was it Murakami, the Japanese author who I've never liked. Uh, I've I've never thought his writing was any good, but someone said that there is a scene in one of his more recent books where a woman just randomly meets a guy and her rationale for having sex with him is, well, I'm only going to be young once, so you might as well enjoy me. That is not how you write (laughs) empathetic women. That's all I can say about that. Um, You know, I'm not saying that I'm a perfect example of how you write women, but it's challenging obviously. And I hope that some of what I've talked about with all this has made sense, but basically write with purpose, make sure they have motivations, make sure they are capable of having conversations with your other characters. But there is one more thing I should address. There's absolutely nothing wrong with writing about sexuality in regards to women. Okay. You don't have to write a bunch of fucking nuns in your story. Okay. There's absolutely nothing wrong with writing a woman who is sexually interested in your male protagonist. Absolutely nothing wrong with it because guess what? Women like to have sex too. So, That also opens the door for more exploration, though. So, again, listen to what women have to say about their sexuality. Read about it. Find podcasts where they talk about it. It shouldn't just be, oh, you're a guy, I'm a girl, let's fuck. Or, 
don't describe their breast as anything other than breast. Maybe other common words, but I'm going to tell you, if you say something like chesticles, you're going to end up on that subreddit where women complained about the way that men write women. Okay. Don't describe women's organs as being anything than what they are. Okay. I don't particularly enjoy that when I'm reading. I don't really read any authors that, that write women that way to be fair, but there are some very questionable choices that I've seen male authors do. And a lot of it could have been avoided by just describing breast as being breast. Another thing that I like to do in sexual situations or scenarios or scenes in my writing is have the woman be in control. Make sure that it's a reciprocal situation, uh, a reciprocal experience. I'll say that. You don't want it just to be all about the guy. So, uh, and on top of that, yeah, it, it would be technically more realistic if it was all about the guy in some sense because certain situations call for that because even on TV or movies, I see absolutely terrible sex. I mean, there are guys who just slip right on in there. Like they're standing in an alleyway. So I just, that fucking obsession show, my God, the sex on there was terrible. I mean, he was just able to slip right in there without any foreplay or anything. They just fucking went for it. And that's not really realistic most of the time. So keep that in mind. You know, I am not saying go overboard on the the detailed oral sex, but you got to keep in mind foreplay exists. And if you're going to write sex in your story, it needs to serve the story. It shouldn't just be about the sex. Otherwise, you're writing erotica. And don't come at me, erotica authors. I don't even give a fuck what you have to say. Let's get into the top tens. I worked on these lists with my wife yesterday. And the first few were easy, but I needed a little help in other areas. So since this is a literary podcast, we're going to start with my top ten books. Now what you need to understand is that I kind of struggled but at the same time I didn't because I worry that I worry too much about what I'm putting in the top 10 essentially just just simplify that okay I don't need to give you the rationale as to why but what I will say is that this is not set in stone I change you know my favorite movie is one that I I didn't see until I was in my late 20s So that's something to keep in mind. It's human nature to evolve with your surroundings and what you like over time. So, you know, some of these surprised me, honestly. And here's the thing about saying what your favorite is and what your favorite isn't. If you have to think about it too hard, chances are it's not your favorite. The things that come to you off the top of your head, that's generally your favorite. And, you know, for instance, I used to say 
Seven Samurai is one of my favorite films. I own Seven Samurai on Blu-ray. I've only seen it one time. I thought it was an amazing film, but I haven't returned to it. It's three hours long, and my wife isn't going to watch that with me. When am I going to have three hours to set aside by myself to watch Seven Samurai again? Probably a long time from now. (laughs) Meanwhile, I've watched Lonesome Dove countless times, and it's six hours long, so... But that's a series. So, my top ten books, starting with number ten, The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. I talked about this on the podcast. What I love about The Bell Jar, other than the quality writing, of course, is that it's just relatable. A lot of us writers and artists have suffered from depression and periods of feeling suicidal. Okay. And it's a great way to get perspective on someone who's suffering from depression. Number nine is When You're Engulfed in Flames by David Sedaris. The reason why I put this on here is because Sedaris is obviously one of my favorite authors. He doesn't write novels, though. So this is almost cheating in a way. But the reason why I put When You're Engulfed in Flames on here is it's the first one that I ever bought and the, it's the first one that I read. He may or may not have some that I think are better. I think Calypso was absolutely incredible when I read it. Um, I've had a harder time revisiting it. Uh, happy go lucky which came out last year. I read it in two days. Absolutely phenomenal. But when you're engulfed in flames, I tend to remember a lot of the essays from it a lot better, even more so than something like me talk pretty one day. Number eight, the rules of attraction, Brett Easton Ellis. He's my favorite author and he has three books on this list. You probably already know which ones they are, but rules of attraction is the other book that I bought the same day that I bought American psycho. I don't know why I bought them together, but I did. And I thought Rules of Attraction, it completely made me scared to death of college. For one thing, I read it when I was like 17. So I was about to start college within the year. So I love the three different perspectives that obviously inspired Demise of the Trinity in some way. And I think it's a well-crafted narrative. Uh, Suitor by Percival Everett is number seven. I read Suter on my Kindle on the way to my dad's house back the Christmas of 2019. And it's a short novel. It's one of the the novels that inspired Greenskin. Uh, I absolutely love those short novels of his. His early works are phenomenal. Cutting Lisa and uh, Walk Me to the Distance are great examples of this. But Suter, I taught it in my class. It was the novel that I taught last semester. So uh, it's very near and dear to me. And I think we did four or five episodes on it on the podcast. Who is we? I'm talking about me. Six is Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut. I have come to realize that while I would say Kurt Vonnegut is an influence on me, it would be kind of disingenuous to say that he's one of my favorite authors because... In reality, I've read, you know, 
maybe six or seven of his books. I've tried and failed to read Mother Night because holy shit, I don't want to read about the Holocaust or World War II again. I just don't. So Cat's Cradle is just kind of a perfect novel to me. It encapsulates everything I love about Vonnegut and also just writing in general. It's just a perfect book. I think it's even better than Slaughterhouse-Five. Number five is Erasure by Percival Everett. Not surprised that there are two books by him on here. Erasure is the gateway drug to his work. I read it for a class in 2014. It is the one novel from college that stayed with me. It is just one of the best meta works out there. I mean, if you want to read quality literary, but also quality metafiction, that's erasure. It's also one of the best novels regarding race I've ever read in my life too. Number four is Factotum by Bukowski. I used to say that this is my first, I mean, my, my third favorite novel. Uh, it was, Usurped by Post Office. Post Office is number three. So I've talked about Bukowski endlessly on this podcast, but Factotum is sort of like On the Road, but a hundred times better. I think On the Road is a terrible novel. Post Office is the book by Bukowski I've read the most times. And I think it's the first Bukowski book I read on the podcast. I could be wrong. But, my God. That guy only wrote, what, six novels during his lifetime? He wrote a lot of poetry. He wrote a lot of short stories. But that guy... I I could easily say that Bukowski is one of the best authors of all time, but the way that he writes in post office and factotum, it ruins you for other authors. You either love Bukowski's writing or you hate it. Number two is American psycho. Again, this was something that I was afraid to put this high on the list because you come off a certain way when you say, I love American psycho. Cause there are a lot of people out there who don't really understand what it's actually about. It's got some of the best prose of postmodern literature, though. It, it really is a, a candidate for best American novel alongside Invisible Man. Invisible Man's not on here because uh, I have a hard time saying that Ralph Ellison is one of my favorite authors, even though obviously I love Invisible Man. Just because he only wrote one full novel during his lifetime. He wrote a lot of other things, but it also influenced me tremendously for the novel Birch, which some people may think is a bad thing when they read that novel. It it also inspired this novella that I just finished to an extent. But uh Honorable mention goes to Invisible Man. Number one is Less Than Zero. I've said Less Than Zero is my favorite novel so many times. Nobody's nobody's surprised. 
If you were to ask me, why is Less Than Zero your favorite novel? Well, every time I read it, it's different for me, for one thing. And he published this when he was, what, 21 years old? I mean, talk about a wonderkind. This guy wrote a novel that transformed literature. Some of you may think I'm exaggerating, just like some of you may think I'm exaggerating when I say that Bukowski changed poetry. I'm not. Less than zero was revolutionary out there. And what's funny to me is that I was looking through TikTok today because, God, I hate that I have to be active on social media to promote my writing, but it was suggested on a Reddit thread that I read today that in order to get more engagement with your TikTok channel, you have to engage more. And I get plenty of engagement coming at me, but when it comes to trying to get, you know, more interest in my writing, uh, it's a little bit more hard pressed. So I, the first thing I did was search for Brady Sinellis and most of it was anti Brady Sinellis thing. And it's interesting. There's a, a, a small group of people who really love Donna Tartt. I think that A Secret History was a terrible novel. I thought it was pretty well written, but I thought it was terrible. And the character Bunny that is supposed to be based on Bretty Sinellis, who she dated in college, by the way, absolutely a terrible character. I mean, the way he speaks, it's so unrealistic. It's stupid. I don't believe that that's Bretty Sinellis at all. I mean, she may say it's based on him, but it's a terrible representation of him. Now, there are a lot of people who think that Brady Sinellis is a terrible person. Fine. But Less Than Zero is an incredible novel. And I think that Lunar Park is a tremendous novel. Uh, Imperial Bedrooms is a good novel. The Shards was really hard to get through. And after listening to him read it on his podcast, I understand it's better to be listened to than it is to read. What's next? My top 10 albums. Okay. Number 10 is Rain Dogs, Tom Waits. Absolutely. I was going to say absolutely love. I keep saying absolutely love. I'm sorry. But I absolutely love Rain Dogs. <laughs> it is also kind of nostalgic for me. I talk about 2015 a lot. It may have been one of the best and worst years of my life, but I started listening to Tom Waits a lot during this year, and I associate it with my last semester in college, so it's bittersweet for me. To listen to that album and to be transported back to that time is just a gift. I'm glad I got into him when I did, but it's this... It's the closest that anyone has ever come to capturing the essence of Bukowski in the form of an album, too. So, number nine, Surf and Safari by the Beach Boys. You will not find any Beatles on my top ten list. I love the Beatles. I think Abbey Road is probably my favorite Beatles album. However, I think that the, the Beach Boys in their early stages are a very underrated band. Before they became the mouthpiece of Brian Wilson, some people may, may say that they were always were, but Surf and Safari is just incredibly charming. And it doesn't necessarily have the best songs ever on it, 
but it's just a great garage rock album. And I mean, how many albums can you think of in the early sixties that had so many, uh, Fender Strat and Fender, maybe Fender Jaguar parts on them. I think Carl was primarily playing a Strat back then. I mean, you look at the liner notes for these early albums, you see pictures of the band and they have these huge Fender amps and those beautiful early Fender guitars. The Beatles weren't playing those guitars. They weren't playing those same amps. I I love the early Beatles stuff, but they were playing Rickenbackers and Gretsch guitars on those first few albums. Beach Boys were all Fender other than a few Rickenbacker tracks here and there. And that's part of their appeal for me. They're a great guitar band. Number eight is Pet Sounds. I actually think that despite the fact that it's not an album that I listen to a lot anymore, I listen to it. It was one of those albums that I listened to almost every day for a long time. I sometimes think that if smile had come to fruition back then maybe we would have thought as pet sounds as the stepping stone rather than friends not friends um the album that came before pet sounds i can't remember it off the top of my head and not the live in studio album that they did either but it would have been sort of like their their rubber sole or their revolver instead of being their Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Because there are some great Beach Boy albums that came out after it. Friends being one of them, by the way. Friends in 2020, great albums. And I even think that Smiley Smile is also a tremendous effort. Uh, it is a really weird 60s album. And... I know that it disappointed people when it came out because it wasn't what was promised, but think about it this way. People in rural parts of the country probably didn't give a shit. (laughs) The people in Georgia who were buying uh, Smiley Smile, they probably had no idea that Smile as a concept existed. Anyway, no more tears. I had to put an Aussie album on here, and the first one that came to mind that I keep coming back to is No More Tears. I have a guitarist list on this uh, document, so I will be talking about my top 10 guitar players. So I don't want you to be disappointed by that, but I'll say No More Tears isn't even necessarily the best Aussie album. But... Oh, have you ever listened to the recent remasters of Blizzard of Oz and compared them to the early 2000s remaster? Because the early 1000s remaster is what I grew up on. I have all those albums from that era when uh, Ozzy's albums were being reissued and remastered and they replaced parts of some of the band members like the bassist and the drummer. I like those better. The remasters that have tried to kind of revive the original sound of those 80s albums, I hate them. 
So I can't listen to any of that stuff on Spotify. Whenever I want to listen to an early Aussie album, I have to listen to it either on CD or one of my WAV files. So sometimes when I'm in the middle, when I'm in the mood to listen to early Aussie, I'll just put the files on my iPhone and listen for a while and then take them off when I'm done because no more tears is perfection from start to finish. There are no skips and they haven't really fucked with the production much since then. You kind of get the same thing that you got when it first came out in what? 91. Zach Wilde is a tremendous guitar player. People hate on him. I don't know why. He's great. I'm realizing as I'm looking at this list that I didn't put any Richard Thompson or Fairport Convention. I also didn't put any Smiths. I didn't put any Modest Mouse or Radiohead. Obviously no Beatles, as I said. So don't think that I just like these musicians, okay? I like a lot of different stuff. You know, at one point I thought the Rippington's first album would have been on here, but I didn't think to put it on here. This is just stuff that came to me off the top of my head. And as I said, that's generally what your real favorites are. So number six is automatic for the people. REM's my favorite band. Duh. But automatic is as described by Adam Scott, um, kind of the Sergeant Peppers of alternative music. If you think that you're a fan of alternative rock, but you have never listened to Automatic for the People, boy, oh boy, you are missing out. It was, for one thing, revolutionary for the time period because it was 1992 and it's a mostly acoustic album. So it wasn't them trying to cash in on the grunge scene. And in fact, if you look at the history of the band, it makes sense that they finally put out a mostly acoustic album because they flirted with it on green and out of time. But for automatic, they went pretty much full blast without fully committing. There's ignore land. Um, obviously their slide guitar on man on the moon, um, the sidewinder sleeps tonight. Everybody hurts. They have electric guitar on them, but and, and Drive has a really good lead electric sound, but this was a more low-key, but very, very well-produced album. Just incredible. It's the one that I keep coming back to when I think of R.E.M. Uh, I had a funny thought yesterday that I'll share about R.E.M. now. I like the album Life Search Pageant. I don't like it as much as some fans do because there are some fans who are like, Lysard Pageant is their best album or it's their last good album. I happen to think that the odd-numbered, <laughs> most of the odd-numbered uh, R.E.M. albums are some of their best work. Murmur, Fables, Document, Out of Time, uh, Switch Automatic for Monster, uh, New Adventures in Hi-Fi, uh, Up and Reveal are incredible albums, but um, you know those early works. I don't think that Lightridge Pageant is as good as Fables or as good as Document. Not saying I don't like it. Not saying I don't love it. They're my favorite band. A lot of people misconstrue my words. I do 
love Life's Rich Pageant. I was thinking about the song, What If We Give It Away, from that album. And I kind of tickled myself. What If We Give It Away sounds like R.E.M. trying to sound like R.E.M. It sounds like another band trying to mimic R.E.M. and their sound. Because any R.E.M. fan will tell you there's no such thing as the R.E.M. sound necessarily, but there is. So, you know, Imitation of Life is a great example. Uh, Moral Kiosk, Ages of You, things that just kind of come here and there, but they really captured that essence of the band, even though they have stuff that sounds nothing like their other work. Uh, Just, they're a very diverse band, but they definitely have a sound that you can identify. Number five, Duke by Genesis. Boy, oh boy, did I have to think about this one because I love both Peter Gabriel era and Phil Collins era, but I got to tell you, Phil Collins has more bangers. He really does. And Duke, man, I think Invisible Touch and the self-titled and Abacab, those are great albums, but Duke, that's like the peak. And it's a very high peak. Don't get me wrong. But it has the best combination of both the prog era and the more pop era. And I don't want people to say the Phil Collins era. You cannot blame Phil Collins for the way that Genesis changed in the 80s because when you really think about it, that's probably what they would have sounded with Peter Gabriel anyway because who's responsible for the music in the band? Tony Banks and Mike Rutherford. Mike Rutherford was in Mike and the Mechanics, and they are to blame for some of the worst music of the 80s. All I Need is a Miracle is a terrible fucking song, and I would love to never hear it again. BGM, number four, is BGM by Yellow Magic Orchestra. Okay, Yellow Magic Orchestra, when I heard them, let's say 2012, 2013, they opened the door for a lot of awesome music that I would have never have heard before. Okay. But BGM just absolutely revolutionary and genius. It's the best electronic album ever for me. Okay. Number three is Gaucho by Steely Dan. Steely Dan another one of those bands in college that really resonated with me. But Gaucho, I have a funny story with. I've probably told it before, but at first I didn't like it. I thought, well, this isn't as good as Asia. I don't like it. But then I bought it on CD and gave it another shot, and lo and behold, it's number three on my fucking list of top ten albums. It was incredibly inspirational for the book Price of the Trinity. And when I was recording uh, one of my songs, I was kind of going for a Steely Dan feel on one of them. And also a Sage feel, but that's another story. Uh, Number two is Gone to Earth by David Sylvian. Gone to Earth is the album that I want to shout from the top of the mountains. Everybody who loves music doesn't know what they're missing. Okay, David Sylvian has a checkered past when it comes to quality music. He was in the band Japan. The band Japan's first two albums, not that great. But then they changed their sound dramatically, and he started singing less like a douchebag and more like Brian Ferry. But 
his solo career, the first three albums that he's done, his vocal albums at least, those are incredible. But Gone to Earth, it's a two-part album. It, it has a vocal side and it has an instrumental ambient side. And my God, I listened to that album every day for two years, every single day, sometimes multiple times a day. Gone to Earth is almost my favorite album. Number one, Out of Time by R.E.M. If I hadn't listened to Out of Time by R.E.M. when I was 11 years old, I may not be a musician. I may not even be a quasi-professional writer. That album changed my life. That is the album that changed my life. It changed everything. It set me on the path that I am on today, which may be a bad thing. But I've talked about it enough for you to know. If you want to hear me talk more about REM, I have an episode on the podcast where I talk all about REM for an hour. My top 10 films. I need to take a sip of water. You're welcome. Number 10, Rashomon, Akira Kurosawa. Um, I know that I made the point of saying you shouldn't just put films on your list to come across as more intelligent or more interesting. I actually like Rashomon a lot. I didn't watch it until I was a freshman in college. And I've seen a lot of Kurosawa's films. Some are better than others. But Rashomon is a classic. Number nine. This is going to get some heat from people. Number nine is The Force Awakens. Yes, a Star Wars film. I am a weird Star Wars fan. I love the sequels. I like the the prequels. The only Star Wars movie that I don't love is attack of the clones. I think phantom menace is a tremendous star Wars film. I think revenge of the Sith is, a. I mean, a lot of fans have come around on revenge of the Sith. There are people who hate phantom menace and attack of the clones who love revenge of the Sith. But I think that when you put, you can't just say Disney. Disney didn't write the sequel trilogy. Other people who were hired by Disney did. And J.J. Abrams did a really good job with Force Awakens. I think it combined a lot of the new with the old in a very good way. Kylo Ren is one of my favorite Star Wars characters. I love Rey. Uh, I, like all the other characters, I am over Oscar Isaac. I don't want to see Oscar Isaac in anything ever again. Okay. Number eight, Princess Mononoke, Hayao Miyazaki. Princess Mononoke is a movie that can put me in tears within the first five seconds that it's on. It is just a beautifully crafted film. And I love the soundtrack. Every Miyazaki film has a great soundtrack. Uh, an honorable mention to My Neighbor Totoro. It's not on the list, but 
I love that film. I love it more than Ponyo. <laughs> and I saw Ponyo when it debuted in America. But Princess Mononoke, that's an that's something that even if you don't like anime, you could watch. Castle in the Sky is number seven. Another Miyazaki film. Uh, and there will be another later on the list. Miyazaki's not my favorite director, but he is the first director I took notice of. When I was a kid, the director that everyone talked about was Steven Spielberg, and I don't really like Steven Spielberg all that much. I don't think he's nearly as good as some people say. I don't like Jaws. I don't like any of the Indiana Jones movies. I like E.T., and I like Hook. I think Hook's a great movie, but <laughs> that that's going to make some people mad. There's some other Spielberg movies I'm, I'm sure I've seen, but the, the worst movie I've ever seen in the movie theater is Lincoln. So I can't forgive him for that. But Castle in the Sky, I, I, it's hard to explain. And keep in mind, I'm watching the dubbed versions of these films. Castle in the Sky has Mark fucking Hamill in it as a villain. And he's brilliant. Oh my God. Number six is Eraserhead, David Lynch. I used to say that Eraserhead was my second favorite film. I can't lie to myself anymore. It's not even my favorite David Lynch film. David Lynch may not even be my favorite director. I don't know, but, you know, I love David Lynch's work. I think Eraserhead's a great movie, a great film, a great artistic statement. Uh, It's borderline horror, but, you know, my wife has never trusted my judgment since we watched Eraserhead together early on in our relationship. But I think it's just tremendous. Weird as fuck, obviously, but tremendous. Number five is Wild at Heart. This is a controversial pick because I like Wild at Heart more than Blue Velvet. I like it more than uh, Elephant Man and Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire and Dune. I don't think Dune's a bad movie. In fact, one of the reasons why I didn't go see the new Dune, other than all the pretentious fanboys, people were bashing the fuck out of David Lynch's Dune. And I want to bash the fuck out of them. I want to put them all in a giant blender and uh, turn them into soup. Because that Dune's not bad. It's not great, but it's a fun sci-fi David Lynch movie. What more can you want from it? Wild at Heart... Great performance from both Laura Dern and Nicolas Cage. I mentioned Laura Dern first because she really steals the show the show for me. I love strong women in movies, and she plays a hell of a one. The first thing I ever saw Laura Dern in was probably October Sky, and I thought she was just the bee's knees in that movie. Number four is Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I used to say this was my favorite film. Uh, I can never not love this movie. It is the one musical that I keep coming back to for one thing. This and Fiddler on the Roof and Rocky Horror Picture Show, I love those films, but uh, the Willy Wonka movie, everything about it, from the trivia about it to the movie itself, the music, the set, the idioms and phrases that come out of Wonka's mouth, Uh, I quote that movie probably every day. Batman 89 uh, is number three. First of all, 
I can't even necessarily say that Michael Keaton is my favorite Batman, but Batman 89 is my favorite Batman movie. I love most of the films. <laughs> I hate Batman Returns. I think Batman Returns is a terrible Batman movie, and I'm not alone in that that assessment, but I have watched it twice in my adult life. I watched it a few months ago, right before I read the Batman 89 comic. And, oh my god. First of all, you need to stop with the illusion that Michelle Pfeiffer was a good Catwoman. Okay. And I can't even necessarily blame her, but that was a terribly written Catwoman. And case in point, the first scene that she shows up as Catwoman where she just fucking flips into the scene like a fucking gymnast and then flips backwards after she says, Catwoman, hear me war or whatever. That's fucking cheesy as shit. It sucks. And it's out of place. And she could have been edited out of that movie and I wouldn't have given a shit. Max Shrek is a terrible addition. I like Christopher Walken. I hated his character. They should have just had Harvey Dent play that role. And Danny DeVito, obviously great as the Penguin. I fucking hate his scheme with the fucking penguins and the bombs. That's the dumbest bullshit. I hate it. Okay. Number two, Spirited Away, Hayao Miyazaki. My first Miyazaki film... I've seen it in the theater. I've watched it on DVD a, a thousand times. I will probably never upgrade to the Blu-ray just because I love the way the DVD looks. I love the extras on the DVD. I've watched the documentaries on the second disc a gazillion times. I love that film. Number one. Now, this is a surprise to some of you. My favorite film of all time is Coal Miner's Daughter. I can't even remember the director's name off the top of my head because he's not one of those directors that you come back to for every film. Coal Miner's Daughter is the perfect movie. Okay. For one thing, great actors. Uh, Sissy Spacek is a badass. And Tommy Lee Jones, he's a perfect asshole in that movie. And he's a lovable asshole in that movie. And I'm saying this is a guy who abhors the way that men abuse women. This the, the way that Tommy Lee Jones plays do a guy who rapes his wife on their their wedding night. I mean take my money. I fucking love this film. I love Tommy Lee Jones in it. Love Sissy Spacek in it, but it's the perfect three-act film. And this is something that a lot of films struggle with. Recently, it's been announced, and people seem to be excited about this, that James Gold is going to write and direct a Swamp Thing movie. I don't care about Swamp Thing. I think that James Mangold has a horrible time coming up with third acts for his films. Case in point, Logan. Logan was a very good movie until the last act. Why? Because... The way that they kill off Logan is with his clone. They don't even make a fucking suitable villain for this movie. It it sucked. That ending sucked. And the Wolverine, 
my God. I was really into that movie, and then that last act, my God. This man, oh, he directed, was it Walk the Line, the Johnny Cash movie, which I've watched several times since my wife and I have been together because she likes it. That movie is borderline fiction. It pisses me off. Anyway, uh, TV series. This was controversial to me because there were some hard-hitting ones and then ones that surprised me, especially the, the one that I picked as my favorite TV series of all time. Number 10 is Atlanta. Okay, I would have liked that show to have gone on for another couple of seasons. I respect Donald Glover's vision. I kind of resent him. And my love for Donald Glover extends to my number nine on this list, by the way. I don't like Childish Gambino. I think that he's kind of gotten high on his own farts within the past few years. But it's kind of well-deserved because Atlanta is just brilliant. If you haven't watched Atlanta, go watch Atlanta. It's on Hulu. Uh, It's just... Some people have referred to it as Black Twin Peaks, which is kind of a disservice to what it is. I think that it's kind of more like... It's a lot like Louie. And I've said this before. Louie deserves an honorable mention because that show helped me through some tough shit. I love that show. But uh, I also didn't put Cosby Show on this list because I was like... You know, if I put Cosby Show on my top ten list, people are going to come kill me. Um, Number nine is Community. Now, I like all six seasons. There are weaker episodes in later seasons, but I like all six, okay? I'm not one of those people who's like, eh, just watch the first four or five. No, I like all six, and I'm excited for the movie. But, again, help me through a hard time. First time I watched Community, I was getting drunk every night, so I ended up rewatching it a month later and had a very similar experience. Uh, number eight, Andy Griffith Show. I love the Andy Griffith Show. It's up until the color seasons. It's also an example of just a perfect series. I love it so much. I love Mayberry and uh, the whole spiel. Number seven is Frasier. So. I rewatch Frasier here and again. The later seasons, I don't love. What's frustrating me about Frasier is that they build up so much for Niles and Daphne. Niles is not the protagonist of this series, but you end up getting hooked on this story between him and Daphne. But the frustration is that they went through so many seasons. I think it took nine seasons for them to finally put them together. I could be wrong. may have been the seventh season or something, but oh my God. When they're finally together, those last few seasons, they're not the same. They're just not. And I I hate that they could never give Frasier a proper romantic arc most of the women that he ended up involved with, it felt like he was just with them because he was horny. You know, it never felt like he ever 
ended up with a woman for more than a few episodes that was kind of in his league intellectually. And the woman that they presented is kind of like the love is of his life later on in the, the series. I didn't like her at all. I think she, I didn't think she was a very, I think she was played by Laura Linney. She wasn't a very well-written character. You know, I don't think the series would have suffered if they'd just finally given him a regular girlfriend, you know, they didn't have to give him a a new wife, but you know, he worked so well with Lilith and cheers and I, they did her so dirty on that show. I, I thought Lilith was just such a great character. Number six is cheers. Um, the other day I, and I'm kind of like getting misty thinking about it. I haven't watched cheers from start to finish in a long time. But boy, when it was on Nick at night, I watched it every night before I went to sleep. Cheers and Cosby show. Those were my shows. And then in college, my girlfriend and I would watch cheers and Cosby show on repeat. Uh, cheers is a show that really caught a second wind. Thanks to, Partially thanks to Kirstie Alley's character, um, Rebecca. I think that it's one of the few examples of a show that maintained a very good core group of cast members and also introduced newer characters without like totally, totally screwing the pooch. I don't think that even The Office really succeeded at, at doing this the way that Cheers did. It's very hard to do when you... the my wife asked me what is something that you hate in a TV show, a trope that is common in TV shows that you hate. And I say, when they introduce new characters, they lose a character and they end up introducing two new characters. It sucks because they're never as good. Okay. Number five is curb your enthusiasm. There's a part of me that is Larry David. Okay. But this show has never had a bad season. It's never had an episode that I was like, I want to skip this one. I have watched this show to death. I haven't rewatched the, the more recent seasons as much, but whenever I was in a mood where I wanted to watch curb, I could never just like skip to certain parts. I had to rewatch it from start to finish. Now the first season isn't as good as, each season that precedes it or whatever, but it's still good. Number four is, is the Sopranos. Now what I like about the Sopranos is not just the same thing that everyone else likes. I like the comedic aspect of the Sopranos. I like the phenomenon that has grown around the Sopranos since it came on HBO max and, you know, you have a lot of fans, a lot of newer fans who have cropped up and they're posting TikToks, they're on Reddit, they're quoting it. I love that about the series. Uh, it, it's also a great look at toxic masculinity. I mean, the whole conceit and concept of the show was what if a mobster, a mafia don went and got therapy? I mean, it is just an excellent case study in in toxic masculinity and mental health for men. Something that 
we still need to have more conversations about. Speaking of which, number three is Two and a Half Men. There are still people who don't get why I love this show, okay? Now, I have dedicated several episodes of this podcast to Two and a Half Men. And I think that there are Two and a Half Men fans who are disappointed that I didn't set it up like a a stereotypical TV show podcast. And I think that there are people who like the podcast who were disappointed because I was talking about two and a half men at all. But my master's thesis in college was on two and a half men. And I think it's a great, like the Sopranos, a great case study in toxic masculinity. Number two is twin peaks. This used to be number one, but here's the thing. I don't love the third season or the revival or however you want to think of it. I don't think it's as strong as the first two. There are aspects that I really liked about the revival. There are, there are episodes that I practically skipped. Okay. The, the episode that everyone seems to think is genius. The one about like the inception of Bob and everything. I hated that episode, but what I love about twin peaks is not just the weird David Lynch aspect of things. I love the, the mockery of soap opera tropes. I love the characters, the feel of the town. And, you know, there are parts of season two that I skip generally James and Evelyn, you know, there are characters like Donna that I don't really like that much. There were, there were all there, there are people who are, seriously demented Donna apologist out there. And my God, she's just a fucking obnoxious ass character. Anyway, number one's breaking bad, breaking bad. I have to rewatch it at least once a year. And it inspired so much of my writing. Um, if you're not familiar, I have a character named Murray groan directly inspired by Mike Erman Trout from Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Better Call Saul is not on this list, by the way, for good reason. Uh, I don't think Better Call Saul was a bad show at all. I just think that it's not nearly as rewatchable as Breaking Bad. I don't think it's as well-crafted as Breaking Bad. I was super excited for Better Call Saul, and every time I've tried to rewatch it, I've ended up skipping most of the you know, season one stuff and trying to get more to Mike, Gus, Nacho. I think Nacho's a great character. I was really sad when they killed him in the last season. But Breaking Bad, oh, talk about toxic masculinity for one thing, but also, ooh, uh, that is a ride. The first time you watch Breaking Bad, watch it all in a week if you can. I mean, that is just some of the best writing on TV, some of the best acting on on TV. I will say that there are parts of it, especially with fandom and Vince Gilligan. I listened to that terrible Breaking Bad podcast with Vince Gilligan and the writers of the show. Uh, The only reason that was tolerable is because they were actually giving insight to the series, but it was just a terribly produced podcast and they should have done better. It is not that difficult to produce a quality podcast, especially when you are working in television. I mean, 
fucking hell, man. I know that there was a low budget show and they did great things with it, but holy shit, that podcast sucked. Anyway, uh, let's go on to guitarist. I don't want to rant anymore. Um, number 10 is Tony Iommi. This is, hmm. The, t- the thing about Tony Omi is I love Black Sabbath. I love Tony Omi. But he's number 10 because of the three guitar players who are higher on the list. Because it felt wrong to not have him on the list. Because Black Sabbath, for a long time I told people, I have two favorite bands. You can't just say, I have one favorite band. I would tell people I love R.E.M. and I love Black Sabbath. And I love Black Sabbath, but um, they're not a band I listen to every day. I don't listen to R.E.M. every day, but Black Sabbath was never a band that I listened to every day. That's something that I I need to make clear to myself and you. Ozzy solo career, absolutely, all there for it. But none of us would be playing the way that we do today without Tony Omi. Number nine, Jakey Lee. Okay. Jakey Lee only made two albums with Ozzy. And what bothers me, just as much as what happened with with Randy, what could have been and what should have been. Now, I love Zach Wilde. But, big but, Ultimate Sin and Bark of the Moon are great albums. Now, Mark of the Moon, the remix, remaster from the early thousands again. That's my favorite version of it. I can't listen to the original or the re, the recent remaster. I just can't. It's not what I'm used to. And also, uh, that version from the early thousands that I love, it got rid of a lot of the annoying reverb that was on that album. It was just totally unnecessary. If you ever listen to... Blizzard of Oz or uh, Diary of a Madman on vinyl, they sound fucking awful. And I know because I have both original copies on vinyl. Number eight is Randy Rhodes. Randy Rhodes, I used to say that he was my guardian angel. I love Randy Rhodes. I love what he was able to do for Ozzy. I thought he was a very good guitar player. Not as tight as Jakey Lee, I'll say that. I think what Randy was really good at was coming up with things that were borderline not heavy metal but he felt constrained I feel by what Ozzy was looking for in his music those early Ozzy albums are great because they have players who aren't necessarily heavy metal players who are coming together to fit that kind of Black Sabbath mold that Ozzy has has been in for a long time what's funny is that Ozzy's never wanted to sound just like Black Sabbath, but you can't stray too far away from that established formula. Number eight, Zach Wild. This is this is where I lose credibility. If I haven't lost credibility by putting Force Awakens on my top ten films or as my favorite Star Wars film, uh, there you're probably going to hate me for having Zach Wild on my top ten guitarist list. But I always loved his playing his songwriting always resonated with me I think Book of Shadows is a is a great album I wish that 
Ozzy would have given it a chance because I know that he wrote those songs for Ozzy and Ozzy turned them down. And the thing about Ozzy is that he hasn't made an album like No More Tears or Osmosis since the 90s. All the stuff since then has really paled in comparison to his earlier work. And I didn't even listen to his last two albums. I've listened to songs from them, sure. And I'm saying this as someone who is a huge Ozzy fan. But, oh boy, uh, Zach Wilde was just the last breath of fresh air in Ozzy's career, from my perspective. And the way that Zach got sidelined after osmosis hell after no more tears some of you may not realize steve vi claims that he and ozzy recorded a whole album together that's unreleased so even before osmosis took form zach wilde was essentially fired as ozzy's guitar player which was really unfair because i mean he could have made the argument well i want to do a two album cycle for every one of my guitar players. But Zach is a great songwriter and he's part of what made no more tears and no rest of the wicked and osmosis possible. Number six is Adrian Ballou. I love Adrian Ballou. Don't love most of what he's done since the eighties, but I would not be playing most of what I, I play without Adrian Ballou's influence. Number five is Eric Johnson. Eric Johnson is a guitar player's guitar player. I've listened to live in Austin so many times. Again, I don't love mo- most of what he's done since the 80s. Number four, a guitar player who's barely done anything since the 80s. Masami Suchia. Masami Suchia is a Japanese guitar player who was in a great band called Ipidu in the late 70s and early 80s. They were kind of like the rock counterpart of YMO. And Masami's solo albums, Rice Music, um, Tokyo Ballet, Horizon, great albums. Uh, he put out some great stuff in the eighties and some of the stuff that he's done since then has been good, but it hasn't been nearly as good. And let's, let's say genius as his eighties work. And speaking of which, uh, number three is Robert Fripp. There are no King Crimson albums in my top 10 albums list. I realize the irony of this, but Robert Fripp is a guitar player. Um, first of all, he's all over Gone to Earth by David Sylvian, for one thing. Some of my favorite work of his. Uh, he was pretty much the sound behind some of the best Bowie albums. And King Crimson, they're not my favorite band by a long shot. But the three albums in the 80s, Discipline, Beat, Three of a Perfect Pair, combined with, in the court of the Crimson, 
quo in the court of the Crimson King and Red. Red is my favorite pre-Adrian Blue King Crimson album. I mean, there are people who talk about Lark's Tongue and Aspic like it's the dawn of, I don't know, dickery. But uh, Red is just just a, a phenomenal, awesome jamming album. And Bill Brufford is a great drummer, but, you know, I wish we could have heard my dream team for 70s prog rock. We should have made an album produced by Brian Eno with Robert Fripp on guitar, Phil Collins on drums, uh, John Wetton on bass. He actually is a very good bass player and a very good singer. I'll give him that. But my God, that would have been incredible. And also I have to give honorable mention to Daryl Hall's first solo album, Sacred Songs, that was produced by Robert Fripp. I think that if you're even vaguely interested in Hall and & Oates and King Crimson, you should listen to that album. It's fantastic. Number two. Richard Thompson. I still try to sound like Richard Thompson when I play guitar a lot of the time. And when I met him the second time, I said, I've been trying to play like you for the last two and a half years. And he said, I personally hope that you're unsuccessful. And I have been trying to surmise what he really meant ever since. But that guy is both incredibly underrated but also as i get older i get it i understand why he's not a big huge superstar uh first of all he's done there are multiple eras of of richard thompson fairport linda uh 80s 90s thousands Uh, i think that his best work has come and gone I'll say that still a brilliant guitar player but also he might be my favorite songwriter of all time as well there's just never been a guy who could turn a phrase like him and combine it with music the way that he's done I say that and then I get to my number one choice and this is no surprise to most of you Peter Buck of R.E.M. Peter Buck of R.E.M. is not the best guitar player of all time. He's my favorite guitar player of all time. He's not technically advanced, but he's the first guitar player that made me want to play guitar. I grew up listening to classic rock, Led Zeppelin, Van Halen, the Eagles, but when I heard Peter Buck play on Radio Song, the first track on... REMs at a time, and then on Near Wild Heaven, Shiny Happy People, Texarkana. I am able to play things more complex than Peter Buck probably could in his entire lifetime. But I still struggle to get that feel because you can play Driver 8, it's easy to play. But how could you write something like that? 
same for Texarkana. Texarkana is really easy to play, but to get the like the same feel, the same ambiance, that's a whole other issue. So kudos to, to Peter Buck for setting me in my path now. I he could, you know, burn down a village full of women and children, and I'd still love his playing. This has been a long and a hell of an episode. And I just know that someone is going to listen to this and get pissed off somehow. If not, by the way, I talk about how men should write women, um, then something on my list would have pissed you off. So this has been Patrick Hadaway with Demise of the Podcast. Happy reading, happy writing. Bye.